I'm Joseph Dweck, and this is Humans Being. My guest this episode is Judy Keshet Orr. Judy is an accredited psychotherapist. After training for psychotherapy in London and working as a social worker for many years, she then trained as a psychosexual and relationship therapist at St. George's Hospital, becoming the first person in the UK to be awarded an MSc in those disciplines. Judy and I discuss the difference between mental health and mental illness. We explore ways that our relationship to sex affects our mental health and how we define ourselves in terms of our relationships. We spoke about how transgenerational issues affect our lives in the present. This fascinating conversation helped me understand how our growing awareness around our mental health makes a difference in the way we live our lives. Judy, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me. It's my pleasure. Speak. My pleasure. I've always been fascinated by psychology and psychotherapy and the way that the mind works. Mm-hmm. Um, and for so much of my life, it was always something I thought, you know, maybe I could do that. And I'm so curious about people who are in the field. And I, you know, we know each other and I know your work and you've been doing this for a long time and you do it so well. Did you always want to do this? <laughs> uh, no, is the short answer. Mm-hmm. Give me a longer answer. Okay. <laughs> um, I think it's unusual for someone when they're finishing school to sit down and say, oh, well, I'd really like to be as a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. I don't think that happens to people. I think what happens is you, like me, take a somewhat circuitous route. I mean, my route, because I am much older, would have been different to the people these days. So my first job in the so-called caring professions was as an art therapist for what was then the Jewish Welfare Board, now Jewish Care. Mm -hmm. And I worked in a long-term psychiatric day centre where part of our work was to get people out of um, psychiatric institutions who may have been there for many, many years. And a lot of the young... Why are we getting them out? uh, Because they should not be there. They Uh were not... I mean, they weren't particularly disordered psychologically when they went in, but they certainly are now because they've lived there for 20 years in an institutional way. So... The Jewish Welfare Board, as it was then, mm-hmm. um, had, a, had a thought that actually there are Jewish people who came over, a lot of them, uh, or some who were abandoned or lost their parents in the Blitz, mm-hmm. and they were put into psychiatric institutions because their behaviour was deemed to be unreasonable. So just for context, mm-hmm. what years are we talking about? So I was doing this in my mid-twenties. So this is, okay, so we're talking about 50 years ago. Yeah. And then the people that are in these psychiatric institutions were put there around 50, 50, 60 years ago, or even more. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we had some like that and some who were newly diagnosed Mm -hmm. with a whole raft of psychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. So I worked pretty locally, actually, in... um, Childs Hill, just near Swiss Cottage, Mm -hmm. and uh, with an Israeli woman. And together uh, we, you know, ran this psychiatric day centre. You too? The two of you? And the board was our... Jewish Care Board and the Jewish Welfare Board. Yeah, absolutely. Was this... I'm I'm very interested. So was this 
spearheaded by the two of you, or was it no, 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 the no, no, the board? What, where did the where did the sense come from that you know we need to help these people out of these places? I think it was post Second World War when the Jewish Welfare Board, you know, and the Board of Deputies and so on, you know, recognised that there were a lot of people with mental health issues, mm-hmm. understandably so. These are also people that are, when you say come over, they're coming over from Europe. Yeah, from, from Europe. From, or they may have been British-born. I see. So yeah. either here yeah, during yeah. the Blitz yeah, or in yeah. Europe, refugees yeah. that yeah. have come in. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. A lot we, of trauma. A lot yes, of trauma. A, a very high degree of trauma. And we had multifaceted presentations in the Little Day Centre. We had about 20-odd people in there. And I worked there for, it was about two to three years. And then I thought, is it them or is it me? <laughs> <laughs> the lines were getting blurred. As- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I then... Um, well, was it? Were you there all day? I mean, yes, all day, every day? Yes. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. That'll do it, won't you? Won't yeah. It? yeah. So then I got a job uh, for Camden Social Services, who were starting at that point the family centres. And that was for parents who were struggling with their children um, and who were then, uh, it's now child protection. Mm -hmm. It was then called uh, the non-accidental abuse register. (laughs) The language has changed completely. Um, So we opened one of the first family centres in Camden, and that was great. And they seconded me to do a social work qualification. Okay. And it was when Camden had lots of money and we rode the crest of the wave. And mm. so I did that. Why did they have lots of money? Well, at that time, you know, politically, we were in a very different place. So the kind of cuts that we live with now, they were not there. Okay. They were not there. We were very unionized. You know, we Government were very militant. Mm-hmm. And I worked in Camden, completed my social work, specialising with um, children and parents. And then I worked in Westminster, actually in Carlton Hill. And I thought, I, you know, really, I can't go on doing this. This is going to be tedious, mm. you know. So I went on, and I regard this as a kind of minor miracle in my life, really, mm-hmm. The first one was my tutor on my social work course, who was the kindest, most positive man I think I've met in years. Wow. And he was so supportive. Um, and I remember him saying to me, you will do more than this. Mm. Did you believe him? I just thought, what's he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very... Um meaningful to me to hear when people talk about experiences of mentorship Mm -hmm. and guidance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been very fortunate in my life to have some, some unique mentors and really people that have influenced my life a great deal Mm -hmm. and have said similar things to me, Mm -hmm. you know, that I, and I ask, you know, did you, did you believe him? Because like, like you say, I I had no idea what they were talking about Mm -hmm. and it's hard to know because who's seeing, I mean, they're, they're essentially seeing into a future that you can't. Yes. How does that um, how does that affect your life? How does that play into your life? Well, what it did for me was it allowed me, I think, to open a door to other possibilities, which was then I 
when I was doing my social work qualification, I met a woman, an American woman called Marty Robinson, who was a very eminent psychotherapist and group worker. And post my qualification, I kind of, you know, kept in touch with her. And she ran a one-year course in creative group work, which was a residential course, three days a month, that kind of stuff. So I signed up to do it. Creative group work meaning? Meaning, well, let's go back. We're in the kind of 60s era yeah. mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we It would be theme-centered. So every time we would go, we would work on a theme, which might be parents or history or something like that. And she would use, without labeling it as such, an integrative way of working. So it could be Jungian, it could be Gestalt, it could be... So she's drawing from different disciplines in psychotherapy and And, weaving. And she used to sit on a stool and smoke a pipe. (laughs) Well, that's a vision. Yeah. And she was amazing. And from that... Doing that course, I thought, mm, now I have to train. Now now I know which direction I want to go in. So then I went and I trained as a psychotherapist. So you did that answering what uh, invitation in your life, if I could put it that way? I think there was something about... You know, just some of the stuff we did on the group work training, some of the things we did in the social work training, some of the experiences I had as a social worker, Mm -hmm. you know, was what it underlined for me was the relational quality of the work, that actually it doesn't matter what I look like or what modality of something I'm into, but it was relational You know, when you're sitting with someone and the danger is that you are going to take their child away from them because either they have mental health issues or they live in an unsafe setting or whatever it might be in their case conferences and so on, you can either do it at a surface level and say, this is my job, you know, off we go, this is how we do it. Or you can actually relate to the person and say, I get that this is terrible. This is hard Mm. and it may be a relief and it may be ghastly and you may thank me. And it's all of that multifaceted part. And for me, it was about the relational world. Is that your choice as the therapist, social worker to do, to either do it one one way or the other? I Well, yes, because I think what I consider myself incredibly lucky because of the diversity in my professional life. I think the danger is... What is that diversity? Well, now, of course, I'm a therapist, I'm a supervisor, I'm a trainer, I'm a public speaker, I sometimes write things. You know, that diversity, Mm -hmm. for me, stops the calcification Mm -hmm. that might take place if you're in a single track. Mm -hmm. So it's like investing, diversify, diversify. To do that work relationally, as you're saying... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is essentially investing on some level in a relationship, no matter how brief. Yes. With the person, which, yes. which you know, the first way that you were saying, where you can do it very kind of superficially and say, this mm-hmm. is my job, this mm-hmm. is what I have mm-hmm. to do. That's tremendously protective, yeah. you know, to the individual to, to say, but here's a human being sitting opposite me. And I may have to tell, take this person's child. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then saying, and I'm going to open myself and engage with this mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. qua that person, yeah. requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability. Isn't that, isn't that dangerous? Well, why why are you taking that risk? Well, because I've been truly blessed in my journey because I've met some extraordinary people, okay. and one woman I met. Um, was uh, one of the trainers of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she was a very, um, originally an incredibly wealthy, affluent woman who lived in Mayfair or something, and then discovered that her husband had spent all the money and her daughter had, um, in order to support herself, become a working girl. Wow. And so she sat down on the pavement when the bailiffs were there taking all her goods and chattels away. And she just looked up to the sky and said, I surrender. Wow. I surrender. And then she got involved with the Kubler-Ross Foundation. So she went to the Himalayas. She, you know, worked with Kubler-Ross. She was Kubler-Ross a pioneer in dealing with uh, death and death dying and, dying and loss. Yeah. yeah. So I did some training with her. And she then had a job working with terminally ill children. And I said to her, very much as you've said to me, I don't know how you do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you make yourself available because you sit for hours by the bed of a dying child. And then when that child is dead, you move to the next one. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, you know the coat of many colours. And I said, I do. And she said, that's what I cloak myself in. It allows me to be relational while still protecting me. Wow. So she's essentially saying that I have a uh, veneer or a persona or an interface that I use that both protects and allows engagement. Yes. Yeah. Did you get a coat? Oh, I think I did. (laughs) And so, are you teaching people how to get coats? Well, I hope I am. I hope, and my is that a goal? I mean, is that part of yes? I mean, what I will say to all of my postgraduate students is, I'm actually not interested in creating a bunch of technicians Mm. here. You know, Mm. if you want to be a technician, Mm. this is not the course for you. Mm. There has to be soul. There has to be heart. Occasionally, there'll be tears, Mm. but you will uphold your sense of self Mm. in all of this Mm. because your clients are not your friends. Do you feel that you are in the majority or the minority of psychotherapy in this country regarding that approach? How is the state of things? Are people wearing coats of many colors in psychotherapy? Um, I'm not sure. I think my generation of therapists and maybe the generation behind me do. I mean, we're more creative, we're more maverick than students now. Um, Have things become more institutionalised? Yes, and more rigid and more rule-bound and, you know, you are signing up to all sorts of codes of ethics and practice and I think some of them uh, don't make a great deal of sense, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. They really don't. Mm -hmm. So as a very brief example, you know, if you finish work with a client, let's say you've seen them for five years, 10 years, whatever, or it's 
a festival or it's something, and they bring you a gift. In principle, you're supposed to reject that gift. Now, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense, Mm -hmm. actually, because what does that rejection do? At the final Mm -hmm. completion, Mm -hmm. you know, it disturbs the completion, I think. Mm -hmm. Because it's a form of rejection, possibly. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Could undermine a lot of the work. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they're those kind of things. I I think... These days, some of my students will actually refer to therapy as the business. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not a business. Okay. It's not a business. No. What is it? It's art. Mm. It's a creative pursuit. Mm. It's um, Sometimes it's very funny. Mm. You know, you're allowed to laugh. Mm. Sometimes it's excruciatingly painful. Mm. It contains all the facets of life. Mm. And I think if we corral ourselves into this narrow thing that says, you know, you've come in, I'm going to see you for six sessions, 12 sessions, whatever it is, you know, here's the mandate, and then you go, Mm -hmm. you know, that works for some people. Mm -hmm. It's not my style. Mm -hmm. And I just think this is not a business. You know, if people want to make be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do it being a therapist. Mm-hmm. It's not the way it happens. So you're 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 essentially saying that one who engages in that course or that path mm-hmm. is subscribing to a different milieu of life. Yeah, and I'm not saying it's wrong for them. What I'm yeah. saying is, it's, it's, it's not for you. It's not for me. How has the field, the practice, what you will call the art, and those mm-hmm. who practice it as mm-hmm. such, how how has that changed in? In modern times, I am conscious that, you know, in the in very currently, you know, in the last five years even, the mm-hmm. question of mental health has become sure. so much more central. Mm-hmm. You know, you have you have Prince William and, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. high profile people speaking very openly about mental yeah. health, raising awareness about mental health. Um, how has that changed? I wonder if you could reflect on that. What we have is now much more nuance. To mental health. You know, it's a much more overarching statement. When we used to talk about mental health, we used to talk about mental illness. Okay. And there's a difference between... What's the difference? Well, if someone is mentally ill, you know, they may be um, inpatient, uh, they may be medicated, and they'll be assessed for their medication they would be seen possibly by a team. You know, it wouldn't be a sole practitioner necessarily working with somebody. So if you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, for example, or someone with psychosis, you know, now I can work with both of those in the room, but I need to know that I have people that I can, you know, I can call their psychiatrist, I can call their GP, I can call their CPN, you know, to support me in the work. You know, so mental illness was as it was seen. We didn't talk about mental health. We talked about mental illness. And Mm. those were those people. And then we had what people defined as the kind of middle-class neurotics. Okay. And that you define as questions of mental health. Yes. That's so important. Mm. Because I, you know, I was speaking about it 
uh, to a group of people recently in where I kind of said, you know, you have a range of mental illness Mm -hmm. and where, you know, in the same way that you have physical illness, you Mm -hmm. might have anything from a cold to a life-threatening disease. Yeah. And, you know, the same range can happen in terms of one's mental mental state. But I had not thought about it that way that, you know, I guess the terms kind of are a bit different because I, I will say um, you know, the term mental illness does still hold a very high stigma, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. You know, if somebody says, if you think about the language that gets used, people say um, they they have mental health issues. Now, that yeah. is a very broad brushstroke. Okay. It can be neurosis, anxiety, addiction, you know, a whole raft of things that doesn't necessarily inhibit people's day-to-day lives. Okay. Okay. So with support, they just trundle along Mm -hmm. and do what they do. Mm -hmm. They have some ailments kind of inhibitors. They have stuff that... But it's not... Yeah. yeah. Okay. And they may be medicated and they may not be medicated and they may have all sorts of support structures. Mm -hmm. If you have someone who is mentally ill and may need uh, inpatient treatment. It's a very different thing. It's enlightening to recognize that these terms are used with that sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, are they used that way because of a possible stigma, or there's, or it's just there to be able to delineate the nuance? I, I think either and both. Uh, I think those who practice psychotherapy we'll often talk about mental health issues. And then if somebody is very ill, you know, we'll talk about mental illness and the support structures that are required, which are usually a psychiatrist. Okay. Psychiatrists have changed as well over the years. You know, they are, some of them train as therapists. You know, they are much more therapy friendly Mm-hmm. The rivalries between the particular schools of therapy and the medical profession have reduced. Were there high rivalries? Oh, it was stunning, spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. You've tasted the... <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and to some extent there still are, and people make kind of jokes about, you know, okay. oh, the Freudians, oh, yeah, oh right. those gestaltists, you mm-hmm. know, they just sing all the time and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, mm-hmm. you become what uh, what's called a psychosexual psychotherapist. Yes, I do. How does that happen? Well. And, and, and what is that? Well, <laughs> Tell us what that is. There I was, minding my own business, you know, being a psychotherapist, and I was running um, groups for adult survivors of sexual abuse. And then I thought, "Mm, I better go and do another training. What can I go and do? I know, I'll go and do sex therapy. That seems like a good idea. Mm -hmm. So I went to St. George's Hospital, which had a very kind of medical ethos, actually. Um, And I applied. and, And the woman who interviewed me, who I still see and know today, another you know, significant person in my life, Mm. said, why on earth do you want to do this course? Mm. You know, you're already practicing as a psychotherapist. Why do you want to do this course? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was about learning a new language. It was about, I can use therapy speak, but I want to know something about 
the organic and the non-organic nature of sexual dysfunction Mm -hmm. and function. I want to know more about, you know, I don't want to tinker around the edges of working with people's sexuality Mm -hmm. and their relationships. I really want to get a substantive training in order to be able to work with couples, with individuals, with dual systems, So then I spent another two years of my life at St. George's Hospital training to be a psychosexual therapist. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about tinkering Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. you do this training Mm -hmm. around, uh, you know, people's sexual uh, issues Mm -hmm. or or lives and so on. How central is a person's sexuality to their psychotherapy training? Is Is it always coming in? Do you find that, I mean, it's... It sounds as though you 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 found that this was necessary in order to be able to really get in mm-hmm. and help people heal. Well, given that my background <clears throat> was with survivors of sexual abuse, so right. they often presented with psychosexual issues, uh, both overfunction and underfunction. You know, for me. It's, it's a continuum. If you're working with somebody, at some point you are going to ask them about their sexual narrative. You're going to ask them. Are about, you? Yes. Why is that? Because it's about their capacity for intimacy. So let's hold there. Okay. I'm holding. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating to me because, you know, this is, you're saying this essentially initially mm. coming from your experience. Yeah talking to people. I don't know that it was necessarily, you know, taught, and you can correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong, but I don't know it was necessarily taught in your training, you know, when you sit with people, their sexual narrative is going to be the key to Not their... in a general psychotherapy training. Right. So this is, in your practice, mm-hmm. you are finding mm-hmm. these patterns yes. coming out. And you're finding that, like you say, tinkering. Yeah. It's fascinating to me because from a, you know, a Jewish thought perspective mm-hmm. um you know part of jewish thought is is kabbalistic which essentially mm-hmm. deals with the more abstracted uh for lack of a better term esoteric but i mm-hmm. I, I like to kind of look at it more as a top-down spiritual mm-hmm. spiritually based perspective okay. of the jewish thought and you know they talk about these sefirot mm-hmm. and these sefirot these are these these 10 I'm I'm reducing it tremendously mm-hmm. <laughs> for now because we're not going into a class mm-hmm. on on uh, Kabbalistic thought. But essentially, these ten sefirot are seen as ten different attributes that God kind of manifests mm-hmm. uh, in the world through. So there's things like you know wisdom and understanding and loving kindness and mm-hmm. severity and um, and one of them is yesod, which simply means foundation. Mm-hmm. And these these attributes are presented structurally, not only um, uh, cognitively, but spatially. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. taught this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of mimic a human body, right? right. They, they, they match the structure of a human body. And the esod, the foundational element, is the genitalia. Mm-hmm. And all that, you know, revolves around that. And, you know, it's it's... Part of the study is to understand why the genitalia, the uh, sexual engagement of a person in the world, should be seen as foundation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And as I'm hearing you speak, I mean, that, that resonates a bit because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you're saying essentially, you know, their capacity for intimacy is somehow intertwined, their capacity for relationship, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a theme that's running through your narrative, <clears throat> your yeah. life. You're, you're, you're looking at relational engagement with people. You're wanting to understand how people interact. You're looking at the capacity for intimacy and going beyond oneself mm-hmm. and engaging with others. Yeah. And for some reason... The sexual narrative is at the heart of that. Mm-hmm. It's it's the sexual and the sensual. Okay. And I often think about, you know, how did I get to this place? Because the course that I run is, it fundamentally, it's a psychosexual psychotherapy course. Okay. Yeah. So that the two are not split. So we don't create a split. So you might start with psychotherapy in its conventional way. And somewhere along the line, you're going to get into people's relational, sensual, intimate, sexual world. Yes. Equally. Inevitably. Yes. Yeah. Equally, if you start with the kind of psychosexual mandate, you're going to gravitate towards their other world, you know, which is relational. So you're sitting at kind of the nexus of that. You've positioned yourself essentially at the nexus of that. And I think partly, you know, when I reflect upon it, it, you know, because my parents were Holocaust survivors, you know, that those relationships were so brutally uh, ended Mm -hmm. for them. Mm -hmm. That's a very powerful thing. I mean, it's a very powerful thing to to be aware of that they they were brutally ended, those relationships. Truncated, essentially. And abused. I mean, just destroyed. You know, when you're one of, you know, like my great aunt was one of nine children and she was one. You know. I mean, you know, then the relational world, the intimate world, becomes much more important because you've lost that. Mm. And you will, you're never going to get it back. You're never going to get it back. You know, those relationships that people had growing up, wherever it was, you know, whether it was in Budapest or in Vienna or in Berlin or, you know, those people are gone. Mm. You know, they are, they're the ghosts, yeah? And we know the trauma that comes with that. So as a second-generation human being, you know, I think that's quite key. And I, it's of no surprise to me that there are many second-generation who are therapists. Mm. Because I think it's a part of us, our striving for the relational world that may have been archaically taken away. So you are, you know, you're working with people at that nexus, essentially, Mm -hmm. of a psychotherapy, psychosexual Mm -hmm. um, element of identity, I suppose. Um, And it is, I mean, it, it... it is so foundational. I'm hearing you, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 it's it's resonating so deeply. The this idea that you know this is genuinely dealing with the the ability for people to live their lives mm-hmm. integrated into a world, mm-hmm. uh, rather than essentially living within a cocoon yeah. of of self. So, do you see yourself essentially as as working on facilitating? a person's ability to integrate into a world and with others and kind of bring them into that? or You know, for me, it's about what is the presentation? What is it 
that that person who has taken enormous courage to walk through my consulting room door, or the two of them, what is it they actually want? And if I can understand what they want, then I can work with that. And I can look at realistic and unrealistic expectations. So, you know, and I've also worked in the NHS, you know, where we have this enormous throughput of people and, you know, and have far less time to work with them. But I'm lucky, you know, I have private practice and, you know, I can work with people as long as I like. And we can work slowly, quickly, however they want. Um, But there is something about what does the person want when they walk through the door and how does that change three months later and how does that change six months later? Because that original want is not going to be there anymore. Mm. As the development occurs, the wants change. Well, it's what in Gestalt therapy we call the aha moments. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Aha. The little light bulb goes on in their head. Those pivotal... uh, Yeah, and they think, oh... That's what it's all about, is it? Mm-hmm. I, in terms of um, the psychosexual work, mm-hmm. we're looking at a world right now uh, as well where you know sexual identity mm-hmm. is more at the forefront and central in in the general discussion than yeah. ever before. Yeah, I mean. You know, certainly when I was young, this was this was certainly not spoken about in any way mm-hmm. uh, the way that it is spoken about in society today. This may not be a fair question because it's fairly open, but how do you see that given your work? What's happening? What is happening? Well, I mean, there's the classic answer, which is there is a complete bombardment of sexuality and sexual diversity and sexual images and so on, you know, on every street corner, um, coming down everybody's laptop, on the television, you know, sex is in the room all the time. Why are we doing that from your perspective? Why are we doing that? I think what we do, and I was really struck, and I don't know if you remember this, you may be too young, but when Madonna did her book and there were pictures, yeah, Mm. we all thought, Nobody can do anything else now. This is too explicit. <laughs> this is too that was it. <laughs> that was we just oh, she's done it all now. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know. right. um, and in a way, sexuality has come out of the closet. That's yeah. the other thing. Mm-hmm. And ho- hopefully, fortunately, we're more sexually open now. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there are particular groups that are not in the slightest bit sexually open. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is people's curiosity mm-hmm. is there. Mm-hmm. And that for me is what's important because part of my work and, and in most clinical settings, you know, it's also about sex education because come, some people come in with really misguided or just simply wrong information. Yeah, I mean, I would say it seems to me Simply observing that aspect of it, the educational aspect of it, um, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Because, as you say, there is this tremendous bombardment, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and I guess expression, but not as much education following suit with it or kind of 
moving apace mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the the discovery exposure coming out of the closet as it were you know in, in different things are we on our way to better education would you say that's the hope mm-hmm. um i think I think at the moment what can happen is that a lot of young people who watch an awful lot on their laptops, whilst they're revising, you know, they can all multitask. Yeah. They can all do that. Mm. So they're studying English and they're watching some porn at the same time. <laughs> is that happening? Oh, that absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. They're multitasking. So it's kind of like just, you know, a, a drink. But, you know, or, it's just uh, yeah. in the background. Uh-huh. Um, That's completely new. Yes, because... It wasn't accessible. There was no, I mean... Well... Before we had, and I remember, before we had computers, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you couldn't get Mm -hmm. anything like that. But now Mm -hmm. you can stream anything you like. What is that doing to our youth? It's giving them a lot of shame. Is it? Yes. How so? Because they look at the images and Mm -hmm. they think, I'm never going to look like that. I'm never going to be able to perform like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to be as desired as that. Um, so there's potential for shame. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, the porn industry is one of the biggest multi-million dollar industries in the world. That says something else about our, you know, the centrality of sexuality in our yeah. lives. You yeah. know, it almost seems as though we just don't have a handle on it. Nope. And so for me, there is something really significant, and I think this doesn't get done enough, is working with the kind of 14 to 18-year-olds about, you know, what's, what's, in inverted commas, healthy sexuality? Right. You know, what is it that, you know, not necessarily the conventional, you know, as your great-grandparents might have said, mm-hmm. So there's diversity, there's inclusivities, there's... Would you say that relationship is a big part of it? Yeah, of course. That, you know, I'm hearing you say that your initial engagement in psychosexual therapy was because of your recognition of the intimacy, the relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's your way into it. Yeah. And so, you know, you're seeing the, the human sexuality essentially as a vehicle mode... Uh, yeah. Integrated aspect of our relation relationship yeah. capacities or our, our relationship drives or or needs sure. would that be accurate to say? Yeah, it would. And you know, you you also have to, I think, bear in mind that each generation has their own trajectory. Okay. So, as a child of the sixties, you know, we had a lot of Indian gurus, mystics, Bhagwan, mm-hmm. you know, um, where there was a whole ethos around we've been too uh, contained, too manacled, mm. we need some sexual freedom, mm. we need, you know, I don't know, do whatever we want to do, really. Mm. Um, and I, you will know from, you know, America and Woodstock and, mm-hmm. you know, how all of that, that, that was a political movement mm-hmm. that emerged and it needed to because now we find ourselves in a different place. Mm-hmm. So there is a politicization mm-hmm. behind this. Right. Which always makes everything so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Right? <laughs> you know, so I, I, it's interesting to, you know, to, to follow that, that thought a bit in which the idea that 
you know, sexuality or the nature of human sexual engagement, involvement mm -hmm. is not inherently uh, wrong, problematic, harmful. But there is this, it seems to, to, to be, you know, an idea in which perhaps its best expression and most healthy expression is when it is riding in relationship yeah. oriented uh, situations. A consensual yeah. relationship. Consensual. You know, that, I, I hear that and I, and again, I reflect back onto my, you know, my Jewish training, my Jewish mm. thought, mm. in which, you know, there's this one very famous line in the Torah and the Bible in which, you know, we are told, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and everybody loves to use that when they feel mm. like using it. Um, but there's a, a very famous uh, gloss on that in the Talmud by Rabbi Akiva, who's one of the famous rabbis mm -hmm. of the Talmud, who says simply on that line, Zeklal Gadol Batorah, which literally means that is the most major principle of the Torah. And, you know, when I hear that, it, it's, it's more than simply saying, you know, be nice to each other. It's essentially saying the most overarching and fundamental principle of everything that, you know, mm -hmm. Judaism Torah uh, teaches is to learn relationship and all that it comes with. And from, like we were saying, the Kabbalistic mm. perspective, to, to learn the foundational elements of your intimacy, sexuality, uh, understanding of inter mm. interaction with others, is the ultimate goal of one's life. And that is based, interestingly, in, that, in, in the, the verse that, I, that I'm mentioning, with knowing oneself and, and loving oneself. Mm -hmm. It seems like that might be the nexus that you're, that you're discussing, because on the one hand, you're talking about psychotherapy in terms of one's thoughts, one's inner experience, one's sense of self, mm -hmm. and one's drawing of that or, or, or you know, living from that into their integration relationships mm -hmm. with the world. Yes. I mean, I think it's a slightly bigger picture yeah. in that... You need to know what trips you up in your self and in your relationship. You need to know no. what trips you up. You know, those... How great is that line? <laughs> you need to know what trips you up. You know, because if you keep doing something, you know, there will often be people who present in therapy who say, I'm on my 110th relationship or something <laughs> and it's still not working. Yeah. And you think, what is it that you're doing mm. to this? You know, so there needs to be a level of awareness. But I also think we have, you know, in my background, having worked with both perpetrators and adult survivors of sexual abuse, that is when sexuality and relationship become distorted. Mm -hmm. We're talking about trauma, you know, historic trauma that is unaddressed, you know, and it's a crime. Let's be clear. Mm -hmm. You know, to abuse somebody else is a crime. Mm -hmm. And we can offer therapy mm -hmm. to that group of people, but we also have to bear in mind that there is somebody on the end of that crime, you know. Yes. So, There's a victim. Yeah. And, we, we, you know, we use a lot of the language like, you know, did they come victims, survivors, mm -hmm. and thrivers? You right. Know, that's the yeah. kind of mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. But I think that's where sexuality becomes distorted mm -hmm. and where people have been uh, abused psychologically, emotionally, mm -hmm. neglected. Mm -hmm. And so 
they seek some kind of sexual solace, mm. which is inappropriate. Mm. Mm. So we have that as well. But mm. just bracketing that, because mm. that is a huge subject all on its own. Inappropriate because? Well, often if you talk to sex offenders, they're not entirely sure that they've done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. They will say to you that whatever the child was or they enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. So there's a distortion Mm -hmm. in their relational world. So when they see somebody in distress, they will not get the distress. Mm -hmm. So there's something that gets completely skewed in that relationship. See, that's an important um, aspect of all this because it, it's essentially saying that the abuse is not simply because it may not be consensual. Mm. It includes the appropriateness or inappropriateness of a particular relationship mm-hmm. that is getting to a point where, you know, it, it doesn't work. And, you know, who determines what's appropriate or inappropriate beyond simply, you know, what it is that the government determines. Mm. It's a question of of what will be the the growth, health, development of this particular interaction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in its mm-hmm. intimacy or, you know, uh, yeah. in its nature. And that is really very much part of the abuse, yeah. you know, um, and which the- I don't think people uh, necessarily think of at first glance or at first thought when they think of sexual abuse. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but so much of it is is about the nature of the relationship and how the relationship either because the relationship can either cause flourishing in the yeah. human condition or it can truncate a, a life. You know, we talk a lot because that's the legal jargon of informed consent, mm-hmm. right? Well, a three year old cannot give informed consent to a twenty year old. Right, it's simply not possible. Right. Um, But that's not the only form of abuse. You know, we know that abuse takes place in uh, relationships, in marriages, you know, whether they're same-sex marriages or heterosexual marriages. You know, I worked with a woman whose father continued to abuse her till she was 53. Now, you you could say, well, she must have given consent then because she was a fully formed adult. You know, how do we define consent? And, I mean, I think that's a whole other podcast, Joe, because it yeah. is a huge subject. Sure, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you're welcome back. Oh, thank you. At any time thank you. <laughs> for that discussion. <laughs> but, sure, I mean, you know, one can understand that if a 53-year-old woman is growing up from the time she's a young girl mm-hmm. in this same mindset, mm-hmm. you know, it's very, it's, she's thinking with what it is yeah. that's been created. And she you know. loves her father. Yeah, yeah, which is the complexity of all of it, isn't yes. it? You work from a, what's called a transgenerational um, perspective often. You know, this becomes part of the... Why is that important? Why is transgenerational uh, awareness important for the particular individual that you're working with? I think there's several answers to that question. One is, as I explained to you, you know, when you work with people who've been through the kind of a trauma like the Shoah, Mm -hmm. you know, or those people in Bosnia, Mm -hmm. you know, where things have been cut, yeah, they've lost fluidity. They've lost, 
in the order of things as they should be. Nobody arrives on this planet without a context, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They didn't land somehow with the stalk. Here you are, have a baby. Mm -hmm. There are many theorists, actually, who will say that which is not worked out by the parents, the grandparents, the great-grandparents, part of the collective unconscious, if you like, lands on that new human being. And so then it becomes their job to work it out. Do you believe that? To some extent. I mean, I think we are products, you know, our blueprint, our template, is our family. You know, when you're two or three, you look around and you think, "Mm, that's how you do it, right? However they're relating, parents, siblings, grandparents, aunts, uncles, if you have that range of people. It's your fundamental education. Yes. Yeah. That's how you do it. Through mimicry, I mean, essentially, it's it's, it's watch and do as I say and do. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And, and that's so, drawn. Okay, so that's drawn yeah. generationally, yeah. Yes. So, and how powerful is that? I think lives? it's incredibly powerful. If you talk to people, um, they will have, I mean, spectacularly good recollection about things that happen in their childhood or some of the more apocryphal stories that they've been told, you know, from going back, back, back. Um And some of them less than positive. You know, Mm. they'll remember when they were reprimanded or when they were hurt or when they were marginalised. If you ask people to remember really positive things in their childhood, they'll often struggle. Mm -hmm. They'll remember ten bad things to one good thing. Why is that? I think it's part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I don't have a clever answer for that. Is it because of, you know, we we perhaps are, you know, the, the negative things are the things that we have to kind of... Well, they hurt. Yeah, they hurt. They hurt. So you beware. Yes. Beware. And I think because we didn't just land here, you know, if I think about why on earth did I become a psychotherapist as opposed to anything else that I could have possibly done, I think, well, my parents were the representation in many ways of creativity. How so? My father was an actor and a theatre director. In here? Vienna. No, in Vienna. Vienna. And when he came here, he had a very strong accent. He had a very strong accent for the, all of his life, of yeah. course. And the only parts he could get as an actor were playing a Nazi. Okay. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> because Nothing like a PTSD. Yeah, no. So he gave that up. All right. But the creativity, the politicization, because originally he was from Hungary. Yeah. You know, he came from Budapest to Vienna. Um, You know, there was something about the militancy, the politicization, the creativity around acting, directing, and politics Mm -hmm. that were very key. So I have no doubt I sucked that up somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my mother was a designer. How are you you acting? How does that manifest for you? Does that manifest in the work? I think it doesn't manifest in the work. I can be very funny when I'm teaching. Okay. You know, if I'm doing a a simulation or Mm role-play exercise Mm -hmm. for the students and they're therapying me as a kind of, I can do that till the cows come home. (laughs) And I can actually stick with it. (laughs) You know, no problem at all. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to visit. (laughs) (laughs) You have to do the training. Um, 
So I think we ingest something. Okay. You know, why are we who we are? Mm-hmm. Why do we do what we do? Mm-hmm. Is that does that come? Would you say that that's part of human purpose is to address those things? Yeah, I think these days, you know, where the class system, while still there, certainly in this country, is not as rigid as it was. Okay. You know, people have opportunity, so they have more choice. And why is that important with regards to this? Well, if you think about the class structure in the UK, you know, if someone was working class, chances are they would never have higher education. They Mm -hmm. would never go to university. There Mm -hmm. was once, and I don't know if you've seen it because Mm -hmm. you're an American, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a a beautiful, you know, the two Ronnies and uh, John Cleese did a sketch about the class system. You know, I look down on him because he's working class. I see. And I look up at him because he's middle class. Yeah, I have to say that is very foreign to me as an American. Yeah. It's, It's, and I think because, you know, in this country... It's almost come to a point where you don't speak about it openly anymore or, you know, but I, I mean, it's the very class much, structure. Yeah. And it's very much part of the history of the country. But I, I um, recently met someone, a young man, about 25 years old, who said to me in conversation, I'm a full fledged member of the British upper class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, did you just say that to me? <laughs> like, what is it? And it was so matter of fact, the way that he said it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that makes me think about uh generational issues, identity, how that impacts us. You know, this is an individual who, you know, just to say, Mm -hmm. an individual who at seven years old had to sign, his parents made him sign uh, uh, an agreement as he was going away to boarding school that he would not call home when he was there. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, trauma aside, (laughs) there's something about, I mean, I would be willing to bet that his father had to do something similar. I'm sure. Do you think that that the way that that psychotherapy, the awareness of mental health and illness, and the kind of consciousness around these transgenerational issues, mm-hmm. which is in a sense awakening today, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that our way of of healing, addressing? Does, I think is it so. supposed to go away? I mean, I mean, what's wonderful is. Now, you know, psychotherapy used to be a very white middle-class profession. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all the kind of twin set and pearls business. Okay. Okay? Because they were the only people who could afford Afford to do it and who could take the time to do it. That makes sense. Now, although not brilliant, we have a much more diverse student population and when I say diverse, I'm including class in that. Okay. You know, so people who may not have had university education, but who have done what's required part-time, however they've done it, so that they get to a place where they can do postgraduate studies. Mm-hmm. So that is changing. Mm-hmm. Is that a good thing? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. That's helping the field and the practice. I think so. I mm-hmm. think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of, uh, as we're talking about class and, and sectors of society mm. and, and so on, um, you know, as a Jewish person, mm-hmm. uh, my, my role, I'm the, I'm the senior rabbi of the, the oldest Jewish community in this country. You know, they came into this country mm-hmm. in, in 1656, um, Spanish-Portuguese Jews. 
which for all intents and purposes, they had to really live incognito mm -hmm, when they came mm -hmm, in. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to be seen as Jew at that time, you know, and pretty much until yesterday. Um, but, you know, we have uh, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in this country. Uh, much of it is in Stamford Hill, yes. which I know you you work with. Mm -hmm. um, and in this this community, there are, there are because it's ultra-Orthodox, there are high strictures yeah. in terms of how they live in every aspect of their life. So how does uh, psychosexual therapy, psychotherapy, transgenerational uh, therapy, how do you find it manifest? What are some of the key uh, challenges in that you find in working with that community? Well, the first thing I want to say is there are a few, a handful of really well-trained, orthodox uh, therapists now. Ultra-Orthodox? Yeah. Mm, yeah, that do. Okay. Ger <laughs> Hasidim, you're saying? Yes. Yeah, okay, that'll do it. That, that, that'll that's do it. it, will it? Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's good to hear. How did that happen? I mean, not just to say, I mean, these are... these are this The is, one you know, I'm thinking of originated from, uh, via Antwerp and Israel. Because this is a group mm. of Jews who, in general, do not embrace higher secular education. No, they do not. So how does this happen that you get Ger Hasidim, you know, yeah. Hasidic Jews that are that are as you you know, your mm. from your deeming mm. um, well trained yeah. psychotherapists? Yeah. How does that happen? I I think something landed in their laps somehow and they did it. I mean, I don't think at any point they thought, Oh, this is what I'm gonna do. Mm. Um, and they are few and far between. Let's be clear. Is there it are, getting better? Mm, yes, I think so. Gradually. So how are these Ger Hasidic uh, therapists coming out? What's happening? Well, I think I think what's happened is there are a couple of training organizations that made it their business to absolutely target the Orthodox communities. Why? Why is that important? Well, I think... Well, there's many reasons. There's the I mean, is it welcomed by the, by the Orthodox? Some. Community? Some it okay. is. I mean, in my experience of being in the Orthodox community, mostly they are welcoming. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I taught a, a course at Chana. Yes. Well, so let's tell everyone what that is. What's Chana? Uh, it's a sub and infertility service mm -hmm. for the Orthodox community in Hendon. Okay. And they commissioned me to run a psychosexual training, mm -hmm. uh, primarily for their counsellors and therapists, but it was open to anybody. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was truly innovative, mm -hmm. actually, that an organisation should do that and allow a mixed group. When you say mixed group? Men and women. In a room? In a room, together. Really? Yes. And the Diane said... The only rule, in a way, is that they can't do work to get, you know, they can't do practices, sessions yeah, together. together. This is the rabbinic authority. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was truly wonderful. Mm -hmm. The work in... Is this recent? When is that? When, I, did, when that did I do that? About five years ago. Right. Uh, I also, around that time, with colleagues, we taught, it was a women's group in Antwerp. Okay. Also, very religious women. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about Gare, mm -hmm. Satmar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, that's as far. That's pretty much as far as it, as, it, as yeah. to the right as it goes. Um, and they were amazing. And amazing how? 
amazing in that they, when I first met them, you know, they would kind of put me on notice that I was not to talk about sexuality. For a psychosexual no, course? No, 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 it was uh, working with children and young people. Oh, That's right. what it was. Okay. <laughs> so we're not allowed to talk about sexuality. Because children are not sexual. Right. I thought, really? Okay. Okay. <laughs> By the time we got to the end of the course, mm-hmm. we were allowed to use the M word. Mm-hmm. The M word, which was masturbation. Oh, right. But we couldn't say the whole word. We could say the M word. And I they thought, re- that's that's surprising. progress. Yeah. Wow. That's real progress. And why would that? So that's interesting because why why would that need to be used? You know, if you're working with 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, mm. if you're working with people who are then part of the Shidduch world, as mm-hmm. many of them are at mm-hmm. that age. Mm-hmm. We're talking about men and women here or men predominantly? They were working predominantly with women then. All right. But they opened up their own counselling service and work with people, I think, up to the age of 25 now. Right. You know, you can't exclude sexuality. You can't ex- exclude developmental issues in somebody's body. It's such a powerful statement. You can't exclude, um, you know, these aspects of the human condition. And it's possible that some might say that in an ultra-Orthodox environment that occurs on various levels or in various ways, and they may, they may, from within those circles, argue that mm-hmm. it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting that, that, you know, you say, although there was a, you know, embargo on, mm-hmm. on the use of the term, as the course goes on, there's a recognition that it needs to be used because mm-hmm. you need language to speak yeah. about the human experience. Yeah. And that's somehow opened up and allowed. Mm-hmm. So how in your work... With, you know, these ultra-Orthodox groups, mm-hmm. are you seeing mental health treated, sexuality treated, and is there has there been development and change? Well, I think there is change. Mm-hmm. I do believe there's change. I think mental health, you know, what we know is, that, for example, there is a very high incidence of OCD in that community. Understandably Is that so. documented? Yeah. Really? Understandably so. You know, if you put someone, you know, to learn every day, you know, you do it, you do it, you do it. And you, and there's very little else in their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes an obsessive pursuit. Mm-hmm. The pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of understanding becomes obsessive. But which is predominantly practice-oriented. Yes. Yeah. You know, people who... What you do... Yeah. As opposed to what you think. And if you don't read uh, English, say you're living in Stamford Hill or Leeds or wherever it is, you don't read in English. You. What are you reading in? You, well, mainly Yiddish. Yiddish, okay. And and they're walking on the street. You know, I've worked with young Satwa men, which I think is phenomenal anyway that mm-hmm. they come through the door. Mm-hmm. And then we go through a whole rigmarole about how they're going to be there and can they be there and mm. should they be there and should the door be open and should it be closed mm-hmm. and it goes on. Mm-hmm. You can't walk the streets of London and not see a billboard showing you something. Right. You know, and whether it's underwear yeah. or something else, what are they going to do? Walk around, you know, with their faces? Right. Are they going to, they would have to dig tunnels, yes. you know, or remain entirely underground. Yeah. 
So are you saying that they essentially have to learn to swim in, on some level? Well, they have because they're going to come to a body of water, so to speak. Yes, you know? absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's interesting. There's a, there's a requirement of the Talmud mm. that you have to teach your children to swim. Yeah. Because they will find water, and they have to know how to navigate it. You know, it's, yeah. it's interesting to think of that in terms of a concept. So as you're saying, you know, they they cannot walk the streets of London. No. Um, and although they may choose to create an environment where they didn't have to experience it, it's really all close to impossible not to. So are, they, are you finding that they are, they are in a way learning to swim the streets of London, so to speak? Or? They are, and many are very confused and very puzzled by it because they don't have a language for it. Okay. Language. How important is language? Very. For? Why is that? You know, if we name something... Mm-hmm. We begin to understand it. Mm. You know, how do we learn anything? Mm. You know, while we may learn it viscerally, we learn it emotionally, but we need to be able to say, that's a microphone. Otherwise, I ha- you know, I have no idea what this thing is. And by saying it's a microphone, I'm also saying what it isn't. Yeah. In one word. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's very difficult. I think, you know, when people get married, incredibly young in my view, you know, I mean, when I was in Antwerp, I would see 16 and 17 year olds getting married, looking miserable. Mm. There was no joy. There mm. was fear. There was trepidation. Mm-hmm. And how do they understand about uh, sensuality, intimacy, uh-huh. sexuality, about speaking out their needs and wants? And why is that important? Because I, otherwise you're done too. So the community is recognizing that that needs to be addressed? In part, it is. If you talk to some of the women, as I do, and I ask them what their color teachers taught them, yeah. you know. The te- these are the teachers that are kind of preparing them Pre-marital, for marriage. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. And they, <laughs> they told me how to make a color. And I think, okay. Right. And where's right. the rest of the curriculum? <laughs> right. Um, and you talked about the film Unorthodox. Yes. You know, where there's this scene, and I don't know if you remember it, where this person comes in and makes a diagnosis and says, you have vaginismus, just use these dilators and you'll be fine. Just let him do it. You know, that's about as close to what we would do as, you know, eating coal, really, because what they've done is they've picked up something that says this is one strategy which a woman can be supported with if she happens to have this condition, which is done in a loving and caring and supportive way. But actually there's a brusqueness about it that is actually quite startling. Mm. That goes goes back to, to the beginning of our conversation. Is the relational in it, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or is it simply this mechanical tactic that Mm -hmm. is done to address a problem? Well, the human scene. But you would know better than me. You know this whole thing about you know having children and Mm -hmm. how many children and when should you have children? Mm -hmm. And children have to be replaced because we lost a million children in the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. so they all have to be replaced times ten. I don't know that it says, and you would know this better. You know, in those lessons with the colour teachers and so on, this is supposed to be pleasurable. 
This is supposed to be consensual. It's not a grit your teeth and get through it business. You know, that men also who have premarital education. You know, that consensual aspect mm-hmm. is actually halachic. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's mandated in Jewish law mm-hmm. that, that uh, sex between a husband and wife has to be consensual. You know, but you've got these two babes in the wood. Right. Who, who, who it's, it's not even clear what consensual necessarily no, is. Yeah. They understand what they need to do. Yeah. Pleasure, mm-hmm. intimacy, mm-hmm. sexuality, mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is it's interesting because that's also spoken about in 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 the religious language and, and literature. There's mm-hmm. the idea of what they call simchat ona, mm-hmm. which, you know, contrary to popular belief, sex in the Jewish world is not only for procreation. Mm-hmm. There's an there's a very strong aspect of relationship yeah. And connection and simcha, the word simcha is yeah. joy, happiness, yeah, yeah. right? The, these joy of the time spent and the the engagement, which interestingly, you know, t- rabbinic tradition has it that the first thing that was said to the children of Israel after the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, because they had to spend three days away from, mm. you know, husband and wife had mm-hmm. to spend three days away in prep yeah. for receiving Torah, you know, at, at Sinai. And the first instruction to Moses just after the Torah is given, is tell them they can go back to their tents. And that is understood by the rabbis to be to mean simchat ona. They can go back to the joy of intimacy again. Mm. So, I mean, this is a major, the first thing, like the mm. first order of business to get yeah. back to is let them get back to the joy of intimacy that we took from them for three days. Yeah, so what you're speaking of is, you know, trying to be able to, to facilitate mm-hmm. that experience of human yeah. life that on some level is being recognized by the community itself as a necessity, I, I guess gradually, yeah, yeah. but you, you are finding that mm-hmm. to, to, to develop. And and sex doesn't have to be painful for a lot of people. It, I mean, physically painful. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people it is, even if they've had children, mm-hmm. because they they don't quite get. It isn't the mechanics, because they've got the mechanics sorted. Mm-hmm. It's about time. It's about pleasuring. Mm-hmm. There's something about um, vulnerability. You know, good sex, if you want to describe it as that, is about the capacity for people to be vulnerable with each other mm-hmm. and not see vulnerability as a weakness or a dirty word or something. Is that a way of saying it's in? opportunity for us to be wholly ourselves without the protections the defenses the, yeah. the shields we would hope so mm-hmm. yeah we would hope so yeah we would hope so. judy yes do you have hopes for the future given our current circumstance uh, well i think Part of the job description of being a therapist is you have to have hope. <laughs> I think it's in the job description. You know, I can't talk for the wider world. What I can talk for is the people who walk into my room and my students who walk into my class. And there are some absolutely wonderful human beings who do that. And I think they will change things. You know, either in their small environment, in their family unit, or in their clinical service, or something. You know, they will develop, they will grow, they will change things. Mm. That is tremendously hopeful. Yeah. 
So it's political with a small P, actually, not a big P. So you would say that teaching is a very important part of your life. I love it. Love mm. it. Because we have a two-year experience with people, you know we, know, we can see all the stages, you know, where they either are completely intimidated by me, which they do, <laughs> you know, or they think I'm Cruella de Vil or something. <laughs> and then by the time they get to the end of the training, they think I'm Do you I'm come okay. in with Dalmatians? Or <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> but they... Um, They think I'm okay. Because that's a relationship too. Mm -hmm. So what's come uh, out for me from this discussion, thank you so much for so much uh, insight and and teaching, is the the line that runs through is relationship in all of its facets. Mm -hmm. You know, how we are essentially learning how to be ourselves with others and with ourselves yeah. in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing what you do. Thank and you. F- and for spending the time. My pleasure. Really my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Humans Being with me, Joseph Dweck. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and check out the links in the show notes for more information. 